Marsha Allison Dawkins is the featured author on this episode of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and I was delighted to discuss with Marsha her book, Clearly Invisible, Racial Passing and the Color of Cultural Identity, published by Baylor University Press in 2012. This provocative new look at racial passing in the post-Jim Crow era is a must-read for all who are interested in topics of race and racial identity. Please listen in. Hello, Marsha. Hello. Today we're talking with Marsha Allison Dawkins. She's a cultural critic and prolific writer whose work can be read in The Huffington Post, Truth Dig, The Root, and Cultural Weekly. Today, we're talking to Marsha about her provocative new book on the topic of racial passing. It's called Clearly Invisible, Racial Passing and the Color of Identity, which was published this year, 2012, by Baylor University Press. Marsha, welcome to the show. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you for having me. It's, it's really a privilege, and I'm excited to be here. And sure, I can tell you a bit about myself. Uh, I'm a mixed-race kid from Queens, New York, uh, who hit the diversity lottery when I grew up. Uh, so I lived in an environment that just constantly tested a black and white understanding of the world and challenged me from a very early age to think about identity in all its all of its complexities and in full color. And so what I strive to do in my work um, and in my life is to create opportunities for full color conversations, um, starting with racial and ethnic and cultural identities, but moving beyond that, hopefully, uh, to, to just talk about who we are as whole human beings. And so um, that's p- most of the work that I wanted to accomplish with this project, and I'm excited to get to talk to you about it today. Very nice. Usually on the show, we ask authors if they would read a portion from the book um, towards the end, but I'm wondering if you could begin by giving us a little preview into the book. Sure. The book is told as a series of stories, each taking a different lens on what passing is, has been, could be. And I wanted to really tell, as I said, the whole story by giving these different snapshots. So I start out in the introduction with giving a little bit of information about myself and how I came to think about uh, passing and think about it as a problem of communication and identity. And then I looked at five uh, or six stories, depending on on what you consider a story. So the first story um, goes back to ancient Greece when it was uh, the Mecca for intercultural and interracial contact and thinking about how this idea of passing began to emerge as diversity uh, began to be a new problem that people were dealing with. Then I fast forwarded to um, the United States and to the enslavement era for African-Americans and looked at how some slave used the strategy of passing in order to escape and find freedom. I then look at a landmark case uh, called Plessy versus Ferguson, where passing was used as a strategy to expose what my favorite anthropologist, John L. Jackson, says, which is that race is a real fiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I use that case to think how people are passing today and think about technology and undocumented integration. And, and what if, you know, these kind of passers like Homer Plessy were racial hackers? And what does that mean? 
And then I, I move uh, forward to look at how passing has been treated in literature and entertainment. So I look at Iola Leroy, a novel written by Francis Harper during the same time that uh, Homer Plessy's protest was being staged in 1892 about mixed race twins who were passing as white and then passing as black and that changed their lives. I look at Philip Roth's novel and the film The Human Stain, which was really exciting as a 21st century uh, depiction of passing. And then the book closes out with this paradox presented by a domestic terrorist named Leo Felton, who was specifically interested in targeting Jewish and African Americans. And it comes out, he uh, gets arrested, that he himself is Jewish and African American and mm-hmm. has, has other than that most of his adult life. So I, I hope that through all these stories and by talking about them today, we'll uh, get, a, get a different take on passing, that it's not this thing people do because they hate themselves, that sometimes it's the thing people do to be themselves and to show society that uh, it might be passing itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And would you mind uh, uh, sharing a, a brief reading with us? I wouldn't mind at all. Uh, The reading that I've chosen to share with you is from the beginning of chapter one of the book, and the title of the chapter is called Passing as Persuasion. Here goes. It was one o'clock in the morning when I made a startling discovery. Insomnia led me to my iPad in search of new applications to pass the time. While scrolling through the iTunes app store, I came across a game called Guess My Race. Guess My Race consists of a 10-question quiz that presents striking portraits of real people's faces. The user is asked to guess how these otherwise anonymous people answered this question. What race are you? After selecting from among six options, the user discovers how the person actually identifies him or herself and how he or she is identified by family and friends. Each answer is accompanied by a quote from the person in the photograph regarding his or her identity or experiences with race. For reasons you'll soon see, or in this case, hear, Guess My Race piqued my interest immediately, so I downloaded it and began to play. My first score was one out of ten questions correct. Disappointed, I played again. One out of ten questions correct. I wondered if there was something wrong with me or with My next attempt yielded three of 10 questions correct. Frustrated with myself and with the game, I put it down and endeavored to get a few hours sleep. But it was a useless attempt. I'd been too intrigued by the game and my mind was flooded with explanations for scores. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that each picture and set of answers in the game creates a momentary crisis of meaning. I did not consider categories like Haitian, Catholic, hick and undocumented as racial. So I did not know what to answer to select. But by forcing me to consider the possibility that others may think of these categories as racial, the game made me aware of just how inarticulate all racial signifiers can be. My every guess forced me to question what I really know about race. I saw no right way to guess what answers were correct. I wondered if this was what it was like for the others during the countless real-life guess-my-race encounters for which I served as subject. Most people did not ask. They just stared in a way that expressed that they were interested by difference. 
When close friends asked me this question directly, I told them about my ancestry and family history, although I must admit I used to guard this information from people at large, sometimes disclosed it selectively, and on occasion said nothing or followed Gene Toomer's example and said, quote, the first nonsense that entered my mind, end quote. For me, the difficulty was not so much in looking like one race or another, whatever that means, but in the unpredictability concerning how the next person I encountered would view or communicate with me. Guess my race turned the tables. Not only was I now the bearer of that awkward, what are you question, but the answers I received confounded me completely. Most of the people I guessed as white did not refer to themselves as such. Instead, they referred to themselves as multiracial or in ethnic terms such as Jewish, Italian, Arab, Armenian, Hispanic, and so on. Conversely, the majority of the people I guessed were multiracial, referred to themselves as either white or black, even when they acknowledged their multiracial and multi-ethnic ancestries. Eventually, it dawned on me that my problem was not one of knowing the right answer across all 10 questions. My problem was of knowing what answer was right in each distinct question. The more I thought of it, the more valid my hypothesis appeared. Guess my race was not just a lesson in racial identification practices and diversity. It was a lesson in rhetoric and passing. Very nice. Thank you. Can you uh, tell us what your definition of passing is? Sure. Uh, I take passing in two ways in the book. Um, in the first way, when we think about multiracial and multi-ethnic folks, particularly in the United States, um, I look at passing as a form of communication or a form of persuasion in which you take part of yourself racially or ethnically and use that part to represent the whole of who you are in a particular situation. So that's one way of looking at passing. But as the book continues and we expand it and we begin to think about other aspects of identity in addition to race and ethnicity, passing becomes this way that people present themselves as other. We can talk about other than what in a few minutes, but how people present themselves as other in order to succeed, survive, find love, impact public policy, or sometimes even find someone to hate or do harm. And Passing is, is both this mode of identification, but also this mode of persuading and communication as well. And when you say that passing is a mode of persuading and communicating, is that where the rhetorical framework comes in that you use? That's absolutely where the rhetorical framework comes in. You know, just uh, in terms of full disclosure, it's, it's pretty funny. I have a lot of uh, rhetorical scholars who are now my colleagues at USC who say, you know, Marsha, your book, is really passing about being about racial passing, about rhetoric and communication. <laughs> Could it be about both? It, well, certainly. <laughs> How does your definition of racial passing uh, comport or differ from classic definitions of racial passing? In other words, I'm asking, uh, you do use some I want to say classic literature in your in your book. You 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 mentioned one, Iola Leroy by Francis Harper. How do how does your definition relate to how we understand passing in the traditional literary and cultural sense? Thanks for asking that, because um, I I really like to talk about that. The way that I define passing is to to present 
ironically, right, more faces or, or different sides of the coin. So usually when we think about passing in literature and certainly in pop culture, we think about it as this thing people do because they're unhappy about who they are, they hate some aspect of themselves or some aspect of their, you know, their familial or social background. So they, they want to hide that. It's this thing they're doing from this place of, of lack um, for, for themselves. And what I like to say about my definition of passing is that that might be true for a very small percentage practice over time. And I can say that because of the research that I've done for this book and, and other projects as well that are ongoing. And so my definition builds on that and says, what if people are passing because society itself is not being completely honest about who it values and who it includes and why? And so that in order to create worlds that people can actually live in, they have to present themselves as other in all of these different ways that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I want to linger on this for one moment because I was struck when I um, actually read your chapter uh, in which you use um, Francis Harper's novel, because one of the definitions uh, that you give in the text on racial passing um, puts agency um, on the passer as um, as choosing to or not to um, pass. But in the in I. Ola Leroy, if I remember, um, what happens early on is that um, the two um, protagonists, the two children, don't know that they're that they're black, right? This, there's a revelation. So in some in some ways, they've they've been passing unknowingly. Absolutely, and that's part of why I think Harper's book is so brilliant and still so contemporary, right? Because it, it brings up that question: then, can you be passing if you don't know? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's that's the question that I want to ask you: Can you pass if you don't know? I, and I, I think there there are different ways to answer this question. I mean, one obvious answer is no, right? It's it's, the, and then that passing. What that reveals is that passing is a problem as much about communication and identity as it is about having a knowledge about one's identity that one can communicate. So, like, it, t it takes us one step deeper, I think, into the problem. Um, so, I, I, I continually thank and struggle with Frances Harper for that. On the other hand. I mean, she says to us, perhaps, perhaps the answer is yes. Um, she kind of gives us both frameworks when we look at the lives of each of her protagonists. And so for, for her, um, I, I love the way she, she kind of draws it out in the book by saying, you know, what if we get away from these strict definitions of race and really think about passing as a principled form of action? So your identity isn't based on what you know or what you don't know about who your parents may or may not be and the legal you know, categories that, that we fit them into. But what if identity, what if passing is about the politics and the issues that are important to you and the proof of, of your identity is what you're willing to do to engage with those politics and issues? And so this is what you mean in, in that chapter when you say that um, in the novel, they were passing for white, and then later on, when they engage in progressive uh, racial politics, they're passing for black, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's less about the one drop rule, although that is certainly operating in the background, particularly now because we're in the same era that Plessy versus Ferguson is you know, beginning to happen and beginning to go through its, its legal process. But 
but she's even questioning, I think, that legal process and those current events that are happening around her. And by she, I mean Harper at the time. And she, she's saying, take identity a step further. So, you know, if we trouble the notion of passing because what happens when you don't know, as you, as you and I have been discussing, and if we trouble the notion of identity by unlinking it from race and saying, hey, it's about politics and social justice, what, what happens then? Mm-hmm. What are we to do? And I think her larger question is, we no longer have the excuse to discriminate. Mm. And so in, in some ways, if, if someone said to me, you know, is a post-race society possible? My new answer is only if Francis Harper writes it. <laughs> Very nice. Now, you could have chosen any number of texts out of passing literature um, to talk about because the body is is so large. I mean, you have... Um, Nella Larson's passing, autobiography of an ex-colored man. Why did you choose the text that you chose as 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 counterparts, like uh, like um, Iola Leroy, The Human Stain, Ellen Craft? Why did you choose those? I chose those because they haven't been covered uh, as thoroughly as these other texts that you mentioned. They are not as well known, and many times they are not even thought of so much as being narratives of passing. So Ellen and William Craft, right, this is thought of as, you know, a, a narrative about escape from slave, slavery and passing is just something they did, but it's not thought of as a passing narrative. Same for Iola Roy, it's not thought of as a passing narrative. It's thought of as this, you know, fictional story that's dramatizing the events that lead up to and ultimately culminate in Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, and, and with the human stain as well, it's kind of you know, thought of as as one Jewish guy's musings on race relations in the 20th century, as opposed to really being a novel about passing. Mm. And so I wanted to, I wanted to explore these novels to, to, to bring out again, that whole story that, you know, in none of these stories that we mentioned, do we encounter a protagonist who, who hates him or herself. They may be severely at odds with the society in which they find themselves, but it's not this uh, tragic, necessarily, uh, mulatto stereotype. And so that's why these texts were were appealing to me. In the last statement that you made, would you say that the same holds true for Leo Felton? Is there not a degree of um, self-loathing in his narrative? There definitely is a degree of self, self-loathing in his narrative. And that's why you know, I, I came across it and it really was paradoxical because here's a guy who, you know, to, to put it bluntly, has some serious issues uh, on a host of levels. And on the other hand, has been able to make a very interesting and cogent and persuasive argument about race that's not entirely different from what Francis Harper said. Mm. You know, Leo Felton said, you know, hey, if race is is a real fiction, if race is a social construction, if race is about politics and sincerity, then why can't I be a raging white supremacist, even though I have a Jewish and a black parent? <laughs> That's kind of a cool argument. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's one that takes a moment to wrap your head around, but go on. It does. But then, of course, you know, he he almost as, you know, as brilliant as the argument is, he then not so brilliantly rebuts himself when he goes out into the world targeting people like you and me based on who he thinks we are, (laughs) according to all these racialized real fictions that he does not want to himself be a part of. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so he, he's his own best friend and worst enemy in this case of passing. So I thought it was also important, you know, to tell this story. And, and as, as you and I discussed a little bit before this interview, and as I discussed when I talked to a lot of people about Leo Felton, it was important for me to include him in the book because people can understand that passing was something that one would do to escape from enslavement or to deal with racialized uh, or gendered segregation um, or to battle, you know, in terms of public protest. But most people, certainly many of my students are in, in complete disbelief that passing of any sort, but particularly racial or ethnic passing is something that someone would engage in in the 21st century. And yeah. so, so like the example of Leo Felton in order to show them that it is happening and that in addition to the fact that it is happening, it's being treated in a particular way in media that deserves some attention. Mm-hmm. So are you arguing that there are no instances of, let's say, contemporary uh, passing that, that stem from uh, attempts to um, change one's racial identity because there is self-loathing. Are you saying that that's completely off the table now? Absolutely not. Um, I think, you know, we live with the legacy of white supremacy every single day. And so this does create, um, this does create that as a motive and, and it always has. But I do think that passing has been overwhelmingly represented as only being something that stems from self-loathing. hmm so let me ask you a, a couple other questions. Early on in the book, you tell the reader that you're going to talk about not just race, but class, gender, sexuality, et cetera. And you do. And very brilliantly, when you talk about um, uh, Ellen and William Craft, can you talk about how that particular text, that narrative of passing, because it wasn't just racial, it was racial, but also class and gender, how that relates to perhaps contemporary uh, instances where passing is, is, is connected to gender and class. Absolutely. Um, so very briefly, Ellen William Craft are, uh, or were uh, enslaved. And for Christmas, they decided to set themselves free. And the way in which they did this was that Ellen passed as a wealthy, white, slave-owning, and disabled male who then needed William to travel with him as his slave. And they traveled in plain sight from Georgia to Philadelphia, ultimately to Boston, and then to the UK and Africa, um, where they became what I like to call reality stars. And they... uh, told their story in order to raise money on the abolitionist lecture circuit and and contribute to the cause. So that's them in a nutshell. Um, So it became fascinating for me to think about passing as this this persuasive, rhetorical, and powerful strategy that people can use when they when they come up against these very real social barriers. So it wasn't just that, you know, Ellen had to fight, right? As a white woman, she couldn't travel with a black male. So then she had to be a white man, but then how could she deal with this forced disability of illiteracy and and class difference? So she had to create a physical disability that would prevent her from reading, uh, from from writing and signing her names when it was uh, appropriate for her to do so. So 
it, it was just a very fascinating narrative. And I found through the life of this story and through a lot of internet and, you know, blog and digging research that Ellen Craft has really become a symbol for a lot of women all over the world who want to create opportunities for themselves in a short-term sense. Uh, for instance, in the country of Af- Afghanistan, I learned through a reporter that I befriended who writes the New York Times about this thing called Bacha Pash Passing, mm-hmm. which is where young you know, need to uh, earn money for their families, or they want to be physicians, or they want to engage in in a certain degree of schooling that women are are generally prohibited from, and they pass as males in order to do so. And then after a certain amount of time, most of them pass back into the female category. So that's that's one example. Uh, another example where this happens a lot is when we think about human trafficking today. And I like to remind folks, you know, there are more people enslaved today than there were during Ellen and William Craft time period. And that people are always using these strategies of passing in order to um, navigate today's underground and not so underground railroads to freedom as well. So um, I think that's the beginning of an answer to your question. If you'd like me to get more specific, I can. I just I, I just want to make sure I stay on track for you. No, that's very excellent. And I appreciate you bringing out those uh, those other examples, especially the international ones. I want to ask you about the um, about the reception of the topic uh, and the book. Um, I, I know the book is 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 being very well received. Uh, I've talked to a number of people about it myself, and um, but the topic, because so many people tend to think that racial passing as your. Uh, uh, opening introduction says it's passe that it's a it's a past phenomenon. How was or is the topic being received by people who might think that uh, it's a dated a dated phenomenon? Well, at first, it is being received just as you mentioned. Oh, you know, why are we talking about this? Haven't we moved beyond this? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But once I begin to engage with people and explain to them what exactly it is I'm talking about people come out of the woodwork to me. So for instance, when I talk about this issue in class with my students, it happened to me just this semester. Um, after we had you know, a couple of weeks of, of talking about it, my office hour was filled with students who were coming out to me in different respects, um, whether it was race, or ethnicity, mental health, learning disability, physical and health issues, uh, gender, sexuality, religion. Um, and they realize, oh my goodness, I'm doing this every day. And so then the quite the larger question is that I, I try to get us all to think about is why mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all doing this in these different ways every day. What are what are our motives? What are the benefits? Why are we seeing why are we seeing this and what are the effects of this? And so one of the things that has continued to come up as an effect of this is that when we pass in these different ways, as we continue to do, are we then allowing our society to pass as democratic and just and egalitarian mm-hmm. and as being more progressive than it actually is? Hmm. And so the only way or or is the only way for us to help our society as a whole stop passing is for is for us to stop passing and deal with all of the backlash, et cetera, that we might get. 
And, and, and that's where the conversation gets, starts getting harder and trickier and uh, more complex. I want to linger on this for a moment because there's something interesting um, about what you just said, and it, and it definitely comes across in the book as well. And, and before I ask the question, I should say to our, our listeners that um, while the book is very accessible, the writing is exquisite, um, it is a theoretical text. And so some of the um, ideas you have to sort of sit with for a moment and ponder over them. And I think the accessibility of the, of the writing makes that meditation um, a, lot, a lot more enjoyable. But in some ways, when you say in the book that... Um, Let's say go back, going back to the um, topic of Viola Leroy, that they were passing as white and then passing as black, which was a specific choice um, uh, that they made, engaging in um, uh, racial up, uplift um, uh, practices. Then, how is it that if we entered into a space of not passing, that passing could be um, progressive or power in in those ways? I, I, and I, I think that's where we have to think about individuals passing versus, you know, structures passing. Um, and that's what I began to think about as the book drew to a conclusion. You know, what, what's the next step in this conversation? And so what I've realized is that my book is mostly about the first couple of steps. When, when individuals or small communities take steps to aid in or rewriting legislation racial thinking and action in different ways. But at the end of the book, I thought, okay, what can we do? Because passing has been going on since at days of the ancient Greeks, right? So the, the other, the other thing to talk about with that, just very quickly to, to just give full disclosure is that I wanted people to realize that passing is not a people of color problem. Passing is a people problem that started in a place like ancient Greece um, and, and was deployed to further um, complicate social action. So I, I just I just want to say that because I think too often the narrative of self-loathing, you know, is something that we think about only when it comes to racial oppression and people of color. So I, I want us to just trace passing out and tell its whole story. But that's a sidebar. Back to where where we are now um, in terms of structural, in terms of nation states passing, you know, I think that's where um, we have to rethink what power means. We have to rethink what persuasion means, uh, rethink what principled action means, and rethink our concept of identity in the law as being about private property that people own. And that's where passing then can 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 take on that other side. So I, I I hope that's an answer to your question. I hope I'm I'm understanding it and, and answering it appropriately. If not, I'm happy to go deeper. No, that's that's a great answer. I want to ask a, a related question. And some of these questions <laughs> I have to say are selfish because I'm teaching your book in the spring and I want to be able to uh uh, speak very knowledgeably um, to the class and and to have them in, engage in various topics. And since there are some questions that I had uh, uh, about the book, I, I, I'm, I'm just taking the opportunity to ask the author herself right now. <laughs> so um, realizing the fact, um, or taking it for granted, I should say, that we'll never uh, arrive at a utopian society where everything is 
truly democratic um, in ways that that we would like, then passing w- is is will continue to be an inevitable phenomenon. Would you agree or not agree? I think yeah. If we if we agree. If we agree to the premise that, you know, a, a utopia is not possible, then yes, passing, passing will persist. And in that case, it requires continued scrutiny. And you suggest that the way to scrutinize passing, both in, in, in individual cases, but as well as um, structural and societal uh, cases, is through the framework of rhetoric. Yes. And you already mentioned um, that passing goes way back to ancient Greece, and you even um, say that <laughs> that uh, some of the uh, um, uh, rhetorical figures that that we're familiar with, like Plato, for instance, and the and the and the Sophists, were engaging in um, rhetorical passing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's actually my favorite part of the book to talk about. And uh, coincidentally, the part of the book I get to talk about the least. Um, so I, yes, I'm happy to say something about it. Um, again, I, in, in really being driven to tell the whole story of passing, at least within the framework of rhetoric, I had to go back to um, the framework for Western rhetoric. And what I found as I revisited Plato and the Sophists and all these things that, you know, make, make our students yawn sometimes, you know, when they read it, was to realize that what was up for dispute in virtually all of these dialogues was the idea of having an authentic identity. And that wasn't was an authentic identity, one that knows everything about a particular area or having an authentic identity, one that knew how to communicate and persuade well and to get along with people from various walks of life and show them how to do the same. So, you know, again, back to this knowledge is was it something that one could amass and hold on to for for oneself or was knowledge something that one could gather and disseminate? And Plato did not like the sophist answer, which was, we can gather and disseminate this knowledge. <laughs> and so what we have is a society in which the sophist handbooks were banned first, then burned. The sophists themselves were expelled to places where they had learned some of these techniques. So, you know, the sophists were very briefly these traveling teachers and storytellers who they were kind of the hippies of their day. So they'd hang out in China, they'd hang out in Egypt, you know, they'd hang out all over the place and they document these different forms of communication and persuasion. And they take them back to Greece and they're like, wow, we've never heard of this before. Wow, we can we can get around Plato and all of those snobs at the academy with this. Like we can defend ourselves in court of law and don't have to pay an arm and a leg for these attorneys. And obviously that, uh, that became frowned upon. And so as, as I saw the dialogues come to life for me in that way, I began to see that, you know, we've continued to live in that moment, that moment uh, where demographics are changing, where definitions of diversity are changing, where the people we see in and, and attempting to access positions of prestige and power are changing. And I said, oh, my goodness, we're talking about 2012 United States. And and so that's where, for me, the, the beauty of going back to the classics and making some old things new really began. Mm-hmm. 
I was also struck by the structure of the book. Um, the amount of research uh, that you did for this book is really amazing. I think that your notes are just as rich and informative as uh, the plain prose pages. Why did you choose to uh, uh, present so much of that research in the book? I I wanted people to understand that, um, to, well, to use my rhetorical jargon, right, um, I wanted to establish my ethos very clearly, that I wasn't just writing this as a person who's been thinking about multiracial identities and passing for a long time because of my own life experiences. Um, I wanted people to understand that I've been thinking about this for a long time because I've done the homework mm-hmm. and I that the problem has been around for a long time. So I wanted to establish both um, a personal sense of credibility, but also a professional and rhetorical sense of credibility. And so rather than, you know, including the notes, uh, you know, on, with, with the prose, which I thought might be distracting, my editor very rightly uh, suggested that we we split the book in that way. And so people who want to keep digging and learn more can find out exactly where to do that. And in doing doing due diligence and justice to those sophists that were all about uh, you know disseminating knowledge, so people could continue on the study for themselves. I wanted to do that, so it was very deliberate with this book to show people where the information came from. And you do an outstanding job. Uh, Marsha, in in that regard, I must say, um, I uh, am an interdisciplinary scholar myself, um, traversing fields as rhetoric and African American literature, African American rhetoric, culture studies, etc. And everywhere I turned in those notes, <laughs> I was thinking, "Wow, she has really done a great job um, from from." Uh, handling such heavyweight literary critics as Walter Ben Michaels and doing uh, the, the historiography on racial passing and the large literature. I mean, those notes are are really extensive. And I think um, you do something really great for different kinds of readers. I think for the uh, educated everyday reader who wants to pick up your book, um, they will be thoroughly uh, engaged with, with the writing. For the person who is uh, interested in the scholarly approach, man, I mean, the theoretical framework and the notes give them a lot to mind. So I, I think your book should be really, uh, really commended on that regard. Thank you very much. You know, as we as we continue to become a more networked world and we are breaking barriers between the ivory tower and uh the, the rest the rest of our society and, and world. Um, that's something that's very important to me just as a as a professional and as an educator and scholar, right? Is to make the work as accessible as possible. I refuse to believe the lie that we can write books just so that they can collect dust. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. And so the idea was to to make the book accessible and to make it accessible for different audiences with different purposes. So to hear from you, someone who, whom I respect and admire so much that you feel it has accomplished that goal is uh, extremely humbling. So thank you very much. You're welcome. I have a couple more questions for you um, before we wind down. And I just want to get your personal opinion on a quote. It's by RuPaul. And uh, RuPaul, in a, in a, in a 
uh, he he said once that we're all born naked and the rest is drag. And that was epigraphed on someone who also wrote about um, racial passing. What what do you think about that? I think that's a very accurate description <laughs> for so many reasons. Um, and and pithy and insightful quotations like that are among them. Yes, um, I I think we are all born naked, and and that the rest is drag. In so far as you know, we're dealing with this society that doesn't let us be naked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we engage in various types of passing for different uh, purposes and different outcomes. And uh, the rest remains to be seen. Then it becomes a show, right? Uh, if we're going to stick with RuPaul, right? And then the rest becomes a show. Right. Now, what is your critique or assessment of um, the post-racial discourse? I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, you know, usually people say, oh, so you must think a post-racial society is possible. And my my answer to that is, well, if by that you mean, do I think anything is possible, like we can get to the moon and people can hack into all kinds of, uh, you know, secure software, then sure, anything is possible. But I don't think a post-racial society is laudable or even, what's the word, inevitable or probable, because we are not willing to have the complex conversations about the history of race, the history of racial passing, um, the history of discrimination that various people from various backgrounds, not just in our country, but all over the world, have faced. And until we're really willing to have those honest conversations, um, and I, I call that in my book, you know, those things said in passing, those uncomfortable moments that we, you know, that we want to shy away from. That happened to me as I was researching these stories and writing them, that, oh my goodness, should I even say that? Mm-hmm. It's, It causes too much discomfort, but I had to push through those moments um, because I want to create a space for us to have more honest conversations. Mm -hmm. There's a moment in the book um, where you talk about, and it's in the chapter in which you discuss Leo Felton, and you talk about um, uh, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party's um, uh, rhetoric, and, and Palin's claim that she's not only not a racist, but her own multicultural background um, sort of alleviates the possibility. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that in this interview, about what's at stake in that claim that that Palin made, and why should our Atene uh, uh, be especially attuned to those those kinds of remarks? I'm so glad you asked that question. I think those kind of remarks are the hallmark of um, a, a conservative and post-racial moment that is extremely dangerous. So what does that mean? Um, so just for, for just a little bit um, of background on that Palin quote, right? This was when she and the Tea Party were accused of being racist. And she said, you know, how can that be? I'm, in, I'm involved in an interracial, interethnic marriage. Hence, my whole family is from this. And we live in this diverse community in Alaska. Therefore, we can't be racist, particularly against Obama, who himself is, you know, not from a contiguous state that's also extremely diverse and he's mixed race too. Um, So there's something very dangerous about that idea that because of who you are, because of your biological, you know, your DNA makeup as being of various races, that you are somehow immune to racism. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, Leo Felton brilliantly shows us this, right? That no one is immune to racism. And so... 
when we hear these kind of things, and we'll hear them come up time and time again. We heard it with the Trayvon Martin shooting. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, the gentleman accused of, uh, you know, shooting Trayvon Martin. Well, he's part Peruvian and and part white. He can't be racist. He's multi-ethnic and multicultural. Charlie Sheen, you know, says this when he spoke badly about Latinos. Well, but wait a second. I'm part Latino, so I can't be, you know, bigoted against Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think it it takes us back to um, that moment that Francis Harper keeps asking us to question. It's, you know, is race biological? Is identity what you're made up of? Or is identity what you do and what you say in the world? Mm. I fall down on Francis Harper's side of that line every time. Identity is what you do and what you say in the world. Um, And... uh, when, when we hear these kind of things being deployed, it, it, it's very, we, we're living in a dangerous moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. What, last question about the book itself. What surprised you in doing the research and writing the book? What surprised me was that there was really so much research left to be done. You know, I started this project well, it began as an idea for some graduate work back in 2004, and then it became a dissertation and the book out this year. So it's been almost a decade. And I, I really thought that on a topic like this that has been around for so long um, and has been discussed at least among you know, many communities of color for so long, that there might be, I was afraid there was no more work left to do. But I was stunned uh, to find how much work is left to do in this area, particularly when we come at it from a communication and rhetorical perspective. I was surprised to be among the first people to have thought about it this way. So tell us what you're working on now. I'm now working on uh, some, I would call them 2.0 and 3.0 versions of this conversation. Um, So my 2.0 version of this conversation is a book uh, that's actually due in a week. It's called Eminem, The Real Slim Shady, where I take a look at the life and lyrics of Eminem and I, I question using a lot of the frameworks developed in C- Clearly Invisible, his um, identity as a social critic, his racial identity. Um, there might be a surprise we come to find out. Maybe Eminem isn't exactly white. Uh, so that that's something to think about there, uh, Eminem as a racial passer. Um, and that's my 2.0 version. My 3.0 version is going to be an electronic book called Mixed Race 3.0, actually, that looks at race, risk, and reward in the digital age. So thinking about this moment that we're in, this kind of part Obama, part Sarah Palin, part let's bring Abraham Lincoln back because we're confused uh, moment in our in our cultural memory and seeing what younger generations have to say and how they use digital media to talk about what they understand to be the past, present, and future of racial and interracial and multiracial identities. So it's it's a lot of fun. And I'm very, very busy. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. And we look forward to, to these new works. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in African-American Studies. Thank you again so much for having me. It's really been awesome. I hope you enjoyed the discussion today with Marsha Allison Dawkins about her new book, Clearly Invisible, Racial Passing and the Color of Cultural Identity, published by Baylor University Press in 2012. For more about Marsha, why not visit her website at www.marshadawkins.com. 
That's www.marshadawkins.com.